Nobody can be too Jewish. That's exactly it. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> Shalom and welcome to the Two Jewish Radio Show with Rabbi Sam Kohan and Friends, a weekly serving of everything Jewish. We'll have a great hour together today of news, music, comedy, and conversation. Our guest this morning is Christopher Gorham, author of The Confidant, the untold story of the woman who helped win World War II and shape modern America. We'll also have a visit from our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Please email your comments to us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com or visit us on the web at 2JewishRadio.com. The opinions of the host and guests on 2Jewish are their own and not those of the radio station. 2Jewish is paid for by 2Jewish Radio programs and podcasts, Tucson, Arizona. And now, here's Rabbi Sam Kohan and 2Jewish. Shalom. My friends, the relationship of American Jews to Israel is a complicated subject. From the birth of modern Zionism way back in the 19th century, over 150 years ago, American Jews have had a range of responses to the idea and then the reality of the Jewish state. The notion that all American Jews instinctively have always supported the creation of Israel or supported it as a nation throughout its 75 years of life, is simply false. And it's worth looking at the range of responses of American Jews, first to Zionism and then to the existence and actions of the State of Israel, at a time of, I know you've heard this, controversy in the Holy Land. When Zionism first got going, many American Jews thought it was a bad idea. In fact, the Reform Movement, pioneer of most of the institutions of American Judaism was officially anti-Zionist and opposed recreating a Jewish homeland in Israel or anywhere else from the 1880s until the 1930s officially, when my own grandfather, Rabbi Samuel S. Kohan, helped move it from anti-Zionism to at least neutral on the question of forming a new Jewish state. Lots of American Jews saw America as the kind of new Jerusalem, the place we could practice our Judaism as we saw fit without fear of oppression. And it wasn't just Reform Jews who were against the formation of Israel prior to the Holocaust. Ultra-Orthodox Jews believed that any Jewish state could only be legitimate if the Messiah came first and the temple was rebuilt. They too were anti-Zionist. Of course, many American Jews were strongly pro-Zionist in those early years, too, and the donations of funds and materials and leadership from American supporters helped make it possible for Israel to begin and survive in its earliest days and for many decades thereafter. When Israel desperately needed help, financial, political, and military in its early days, and over those first few decades— it sent luminaries like Golda Meir to ask American Jews to give that support. Israel Bonds was a crucial institution in those days, giving Israel financial credibility in international markets, getting it started, helping it to survive. In fact, the notion that we should provide financial support for Israel is so deeply embedded in the American Jewish community's mentality that it's fascinating that it remains central to our own Jewish identities today. After all, 
Israel is no longer in any real danger of being invaded or destroyed by Arab armies. That very real existential threat ended nearly 40 years ago, well, perhaps even more, with the Egyptian-Israeli peace accord and Israeli military supremacy in the entire region. And then, of course, the Oslo Accords, way back in the 1990s, confirmed it. And the recent Abraham Accords, well, put another seal on it. Israel is not the poor, struggling economy it was for the first 30 years of its existence. It is startup nation, with a higher GDP per capita than many European countries, most, in fact, including Italy, France, and even the UK. Yet American Jews continue to believe that we need to send money to help Israel, rather than help our own underfunded Jewish community institutions. Fascinating. In any case, there has always been a diversity of opinion on what the proper relationship between American Jews and Israel should be. For a long time, Israelis basically said, if you aren't living here, you should just write checks and get your congresspeople and senators to vote for military aid and shut up about our own Israeli internal affairs. And most American Jews agreed with that. After all, we weren't fighting in the IDF. Well, that was an easier position to have when Israel's leadership more closely mirrored American Jews' own political predilections, which tend to run towards moderate to liberal. Although, of course, there are also many American Jews who are conservative, especially among the Orthodox movements. Israel's leadership hasn't been liberal or even moderate for decades now, really. And the resistance to American Jews to writing checks and providing political support for Israel has waxed and waned. It was challenged first and most dramatically during the Lebanon War in the early 1980s, when Ariel Sharon captured Beirut. It was challenged again during the first Intifada in the late 1980s and early 90s, and then the second Intifada in the early 2000s. It's been challenged repeatedly by trouble in Gaza, both before and after Israel withdrew from there, by war there, by war in Lebanon, by sundry disasters in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict over the decades of stalemate and worse since the collapse of the Oslo Accords in the late 90s. Bibi Netanyahu has long been a polarizing figure in that American-Israeli debate, and now Israel has turned from actively courting all American Jews across the political spectrum to successfully seeking evangelical Christian support for its policies, while playing much more to the Orthodox Jewish base in America. Well, I'm prompted to discuss all of this by an op-ed that Tom Friedman wrote for the New York Times, saying that it was time for American Jews to take a stand against Netanyahu's policies and, I quote, choose a side in the Israeli political debate and the protest movement resisting the current Netanyahu government's actions against democracy. This is not the first such op-ed from Tom Friedman for the New York Times since this right-wing Israeli government took power late last year. Friedman, if you recall, wrote From Beirut to Jerusalem way back in 1989, winning a National Book Award for reporting, and then the quite silly book The Lexus and the Olive Tree, predicting that globalism would end all international conflict. Tom Friedman has won three Pulitzer Prizes. He is a smart guy who for a long time has been a political pundit that is really just a talking head. Sometimes Friedman is right, sometimes he is quite wrong, but he is never uncertain. 
At times, Tom Friedman has championed the Saudi royal prince, Mohammed bin Salman, as a liberalizing reformer. Bin Salman is now most famous for having a journalist chopped up in pieces in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul and for trying to perpetrate genocide in Yemen. Tom Friedman has also been a supporter of Vladimir Putin. He once told America to keep rooting for Putin. Yeesh. And he has supported the Chinese autocracy. In fact, Friedman is credited for popularizing the phrase the Chinese dream, which was picked up by Chinese dictator Xi as a national slogan. Look, I don't personally think that this judicial putsch by Netanyahu is anything but a terrible idea that may actually get him kicked out of office. But I also don't believe American Jews should take some sort of anti-Israel stand just in time for the 75th anniversary celebration of the remarkable and only Jewish nation on Earth's birthday. Look, Israel has a vibrant, vital democracy, tons of free speech and free press, and a far more active non-violent protest movement than we have in America. Israelis are speaking out and trying to prevent this effort to take over the judiciary in a way Americans did not when it kind of happened here. We can love Israel and not agree with some of her policies, just as we can love America and not agree with some or even many of hers. We don't know which way this whole thing will go now, but the Israeli public is acting in stronger and stronger non-violent ways to protest the direction of its own government. Well, let's see how it ends up, shall we? Before we declare that it's up to American Jews to take sides and tell Israel how to run things. In happier news, Pesach is coming to play us in this morning and to get us started on our pre-Passover preview of Pesach music. Here's 613's The Lion King Passover. It's about three years old. Pesach is a lot older than that. Here's a great parody of Elton John's score for The Lion King for Pesach coming up in just three and a half weeks. Thank you. 
That was 613's Lion King rendition of Passover for Pesach in three and a half weeks. You can attend our extraordinary Passover Seder at Beit Simcha with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, leading it. It's on the first night of Passover, Wednesday, April 5th at 6 p.m. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.com to sign up, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A-Tucson.com. As Moses said, more or less, let my people rejoice. Make this year a fabulous Seder to remember. Prime rib is one of the food options, by the way. Our guest on Two Jewish This Morning, Christopher Gorham, is the author of The Confidant, the untold story of the woman who helped win World War II and shape modern America. It is a fascinating tale, I promise, about somebody who should be famous today, and even the writing of it is interesting. Meet Christopher Gorham, hear about him and her when we come back in a moment on Two Jewish. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki tribe. We are delighted to welcome to Two Jewish our guest this morning. Christopher Gorham is an attorney and writer. He's the author of a fascinating biography, The Confidant, the untold story of the woman who helped win World War II and shape modern America and then was persecuted. Uh, and we'll get into that. Good morning and welcome to Two Jewish. Thank you, Rabbi Kahn. Thanks for having me on. So tell us, how did you get interested in this story in the first place? Four or five years ago, I came across a picture of this uh, striking-looking woman with President Truman, and it said, Anna Rosenberg, Assistant Secretary of Defense. And I'd never heard of her. I'd never seen her. I added her name to my menu of items for kids to research for their junior research paper. I'm a high school history teacher. And the kids that picked her as their subject couldn't find any books, not a single book. And I was flabbergasted. We then learned that her papers were at Harvard, so my wife and I met this group of students there, and they wheeled out her papers, and uh, we put on the silk gloves and started digging through. One of my kids said, Mr. Gorham, come over here, take a look. And it was, you know, handwritten letters by Harry Truman, Eleanor Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, just a roll call of history. And uh, that was the moment that I decided that uh, I needed to get a book uh, on Anna Rosenberg. Frankly, I had never heard of her until your book uh, came across uh, here at Two Jewish. Which is crazy because, you know, in my research, she was a famous woman in the 40s up to about the mid-50s. Um, cover of magazines in New York Times all the time. Uh, Life did a big photo essay on her, and her star just dimmed. It sounds like a, a, a strange question. Um, obviously, the the Rosenbergs... Who were not related to her, their trial for being communists and the atomic bomb controversy and all that. Um, I mean, did that have something to do with it? Absolutely. And Rabbi Kohan, it, it happened at the same time. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were arrested in 1950 and then their trial commenced. Right at that moment, Anna Rosenberg, who surname by marriage was being nominated as this top, you know, Pentagon official to help reverse the disastrous uh, Korean War. 
and Rosenbergs around the country were shunned. They lost friends. They were ostracized. And that certainly had something to do with Anna Rosenberg's reluctance to trumpet her own career uh, later on with a memoir or, uh, you know, selling her selling her papers and, and having it made into a, a biography of some sort. It's tragic and fascinating. Um, we will talk much more with Christopher Gorham about uh, Anna Rosenberg, her unique career, um, including some extraordinary stories during World War II and, and in its aftermath. And we come back in a moment here on Too Jewish. Beit Simcha, the House of Joy, a wonderful Jewish synagogue in northwest Tucson in the Catalina foothills, celebrates a great array of services, classes, and events this spring. Established by passionate, caring congregants and me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, Beit Simcha is a vibrant, vital community that strives every day to serve God with joy. A progressive congregation in northwest Tucson and the foothills, Beit Simcha is open to everyone throughout the Tucson metropolitan area, Weekly Shabbat services, Friday night and Saturday morning, Youth and Adult Education Academy courses, social justice opportunities, outreach, and cultural Jewish programming. Join us in person for Shabbat services or come on Facebook Live. Go to our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A, Tucson.org. We welcome members and guests in our sanctuary in person. Call 520-276-5675. That's 520-276-5675. Religious school for school-aged children or grandchildren is available. Join us for Hebrew school, bar and bat mitzvah, Torah tykes, confirmation, teen programs, all in a fun, relaxed setting with great Jewish learning. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org to sign up. Beit Simcha services, classes, and events are open to everyone. In-person services, Friday night or Saturday morning, or come on our Facebook page. Shabbat evening celebration services with full music are at 6.30 p.m. Saturday services at 10 a.m. preceded by Torah study at 9 a.m. on Zoom. Facebook page is B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson. All of our Adult Education Academy classes are live and on Zoom. You can go to those by going to our website, Beit Simcha Tucson. Religious school is available in blended format, too. Some students live, some on Zoom. Passover is coming up fast. This year, join me, Rabbi Sam Kohan and Beit Simcha, for a fabulous first-night Pesach Seder filled with song, meaning, beauty, and inspiration. It's April 5th at 6 p.m., Wednesday night. A catered kosher for Pesach meal includes all the ritual foods, plus Prime ribs, salmon, or a vegan main course, soup, gefilte fish, and matzo balls, salad, dessert, and, you know, matzah. Haggadot and joy are provided. Make this a Passover to remember. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org to sign up. For more information about Beit Simcha, to come to services, the Pesach Seder, religious school, Torah Tykes, Bar and Bat Mitzvah, Confirmation, high school programs, rich array of adult education academy courses, live and on Zoom, and all of our services in person and on Facebook, go to B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A-Tucson.org or call 520-276-5675. That's 520-276-5675, BeitSimchaTucson.org. Join me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, and the fastest-growing Jewish congregation and community in all of Arizona in its exciting beginning years. If you have a question, comment, compliment, or criticism, Kvetrik Fell, please email us at 2JewishRadio8. 
18 at gmail.com. That's T-O-O Jewish Radio 18 at gmail. Or go to our website, 2JewishRadio.com. You can hear all past and present shows through our website, 2JewishRadio.com. Streaming us from there or downloading us from the Apple iTunes Store is a very popular Jewish podcast, Top 10 in America, according to Moment Magazine. Over 200,000 downloads on Podbean and on Spotify, too. Post a rating, review 2Jewish wherever you listen to us. Those comments help. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation, known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful, grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We welcome our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Rabbi. We started talking last week about Central Asia and what constitutes, there we go, (laughs) Central Asia. You mentioned Afghanistan as uh, the first country, never part of the former Soviet Union, um, but definitely a Central Asian country, and how those countries are along the Silk Route and how that, or the various Silk Routes, if you will, and how that um, led to Jewish civilization in various places along that route as well. Yep. Uh, tell us about some of the other countries in that region. So the other countries in the region mostly end with the um, sound unit Stan or Stan in English. The Stans. We say if Afghanistan, you will. not Afghanistan. But Stan is the Turkish word for the country of. So the country of the Hindus is Hindustan, India. The country of the Greeks is Yunanistan, Greece. Hungary, which is full of Mudgers, is called Mudjaristan in Turkish. So all these Stans really have Turkic names in accord with their original languages. And those Stans include Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, which is geographically huge, and much smaller geographically are... Um, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. Um, Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, these all have Turkic-speaking languages that they use? With one exception. Tajikistan has a language that's more closely related to Persian, to Farsi. And it is not 
considered a Turkic-speaking country. Um, it's the only exception. All the rest have some version of a Turkic, a similar language. language. I mean, like you know, Portuguese, Spanish, kind of similar. Um, now, these countries include ancient centers of Jewish civilization, like um, Bukhara and Samarkand, which probably existed before the Silk Routes. I mean, the Silk Routes were essentially a consequence of Marco Polo's famous voyage to the east. And he went from Venice to somewhere in China. Somewhere in China, yeah. And brought back goods and also the tradition of making noodles, which we think of as Italian, but started in China. Pasta comes from China, boys and And then lots of other travelers followed in his footsteps and established a series of commercial entrepôts along the way. And now that mind you, that that's true, but of course that trade route existed long before Marco Polo. Uh, there were definite, there was definite trade going from China all the way to the West, uh, hundreds of years before that. Well, European nobles always wanted silk, and until the seventh century of the Common Era, the only place you could get silk China. was China. Right. Um, so, but I think maybe earlier. There was not a through route. There were like various stages. So stuff would change hands at five or six points along what eventually developed into the Silk Route. It wasn't like... It wasn't like a through route with one wasn't somebody started bringing. in Venice and ended up in China. Right. That was Marco Polo. That was his big innovation and breakthrough. And then after him, you can really talk about Silk Routes in the more modern sense. So um, along the way, and in these, I expect, especially in these centers where exchange took place, communities developed to facilitate that exchange. There were Jewish communities pretty much all along right. this, this route. And essentially bankers to exchange money and right. letters of credit and all, all the commercial transactions which characterized this world, um, a good portion of them were facilitated by Jews. And, and in part, that's because Jews um, could trust their co-religionists in all the various different places, and they often had some common language that they could share. Well, and they had a higher rate of literacy. So right. being able to read and write and read a letter of credit or write a letter of credit was an important yeah. <laughs> element in and, this whole process. And count, by the way. Like, both were really uh, not necessarily obvious skills for a long time. Right. So... You know, it's interesting. One of the world's oldest cities in Afghanistan is Balkh, B-A-L-K-H. And it was the capital of ancient Bactria, you know, pre-Roman Bactria. That's where the Bactrian like the camel, camel comes, comes from. from. Right, exactly. Those. So Balkh had at one point a significant Jewish community. It disappeared long ago, sure. before, long before the Christian era. But some of these Jewish communities go way back to the destruction of the first temple. We will talk about some of those when we come back next week. Thanks so much, Tom. My pleasure. It's time now for our old Jewish joke of the week. Jewish humor, your Bubby and Zadie New, brought to you by Two Jewish as a public service. An old Jewish guy is on the subway, sits down next to a younger man. He notices the young man has a strange kind of shirt collar. Never having seen a priest before, he asks the man, Excuse me, sir, 
Why do you have your shirt collar on backwards? The priest politely answers, I wear this collar because I'm a father. The Jewish man responds, Sir, I also am a father, but I wear my collar frontways. Why do you wear your collar so differently? The priest answers, Sir, I am the father of many. The old Jewish man answers, I too am the father of many. I have four sons, four daughters, too many grandchildren to count. But I wear my collar like everybody else does. Why do you wear it your way? By now the priest is getting exasperated and he says dismissively, Sir, I am the father for hundreds and hundreds of people. The old Jewish man is taken aback. He sits silently for the rest of his ride. As he gets up to leave the subway train, he leans over the priest and says, Mister, maybe it's your pants you should wear backwards. That was the old Jewish joke of the week, special feature of Two Jewish, just for you, you should live and be well. That one, courtesy of the late, great Myron Cohen. And now a word of Torah. Hope is a tangible, unstated presence in our portion this week, a doubled one, Vayakhel Pekudei, the combination at the end of the book of Exodus. On the surface, this parsha is nothing more than a list of how the tabernacle in the wilderness is constructed by our ancestors. Materials used, processes employed, structures and implements assembled. So many pieces of wood, gold, skins, animals used to make this item. These artisans employed on that project. Moses asked for these materials and they were graciously donated and so on and so forth. But in another sense... This is an incredibly hopeful Torah portion, a section that truly represents the triumph of hope over experience. For in last week's portion of Kitisa, the people of Israel dramatically failed both God and Moses. They made a golden calf, worshipped it, and bowed down before it, insisting that it was their God. Just 40 days after receiving the Ten Commandments at Sinai, they forgot the revelation, abandoned monotheism and morality and everything they'd just been taught, including the second commandment prohibiting the worship of idols. It was a devastating moment for Moses. It must have been a fundamentally depressing time for God, too. Yet, just a few passages later, we find God instructing Moses to build a tabernacle, a permanent home for the Shekhinah, the divine presence, in the midst of this same rotten Israelite people. Those people, the Israelites, our ancestors, have just proven they are not worthy, and yet God immediately gives them a place. No, insists they create a space that will be a constant, permanent reminder that God is always with them and will never abandon them. It seems like a sort of reward for treachery. Actually, it's a promise of hope. For if God will dwell among them, asuli mikdash v'shachanti b'tocham, We were told in the earlier portion of Truma, build me a sanctuary and I will dwell there among you. That's a pledge that things can always be made good, that losses, in some sense, can be replaced, that we are always able to come into grace and blessing. This Torah juxtapositioning is crucial. This portion's placement between the betrayal of the golden calf and the blessing of a brand spanking new tabernacle, the model for every temple in Jewish history, is a promise and pledge of hope. 
You know the Hebrew word for hope, I think, tikvah, from the national anthem of Israel, HaTikvah. But for me, tikvah, tikvah, is a promise from God that even after our worst moments, even in our depths of despair or failure, we can return to holiness and goodness. And God will be present for us and among us. So may it always be. When we return in a moment, our guest this morning, Christopher Gorham, has written an amazing biography of a Jewish woman who was a crucial player in the events of the middle of the 20th century and who you have likely never heard of until now. Find out all about her when we come back in a moment on Too Jewish. We continue with our Too Jewish update on news of Jews around the world with commentary. In Israel, protests against the Bibi Netanyahu plan to neuter the national judiciary spread across the country and involved a variety of sectors of the nation. High-tech workers in Tel Aviv staged massive protests and closed major roads in Israel's largest city, while Israeli Air Force reservists in particularly important units, including fighter pilots in an elite unit, refused to conduct regular training missions and assignments. Reserve soldiers and former members of the security establishment in particular continue to take an active part in leading the ongoing protests. Last week, hundreds of veterans of the Shin Bet Security Service and Sayeret Matkal, the fabled commando unit of the Entebbe raid, led by Yonatan Netanyahu of blessed memory, the prime minister's older brother, protested in front of the home of Avi Dikter, a former Shin Bet chief, and now agriculture minister in Netanyahu's government. Around 150 Israeli army reservists who serve as cyber specialists also announced they'll stop reporting for duty if the judicial overhaul led by Netanyahu's far-right government is advanced. Among the reserve personnel are officers in the rank of colonel, lieutenant colonel, and major. Women formed a human chain across Israel protesting the judicial plan, and a day of resistance throughout Israel highlighted what many, perhaps most Israelis, view as a terrible proposal that will do long-term damage to Israel's economy, international standing, and of course, its democracy. In the face of all this resistance, now in its eighth increasingly vigorous week, Bibi Netanyahu has shown no signs of modifying his plan to destroy the independence of the judiciary in Israel. After all, he doesn't want to go to jail anytime soon for corruption, does he? A long-awaited sequel to Mel Brooks' History of the World Part 1 movie is out as a Hulu streaming series. It's, well, kind of amusing in the same way that Mel Brooks' lesser films like, say, Spaceballs or Men in Tights are. You know, dumb, slapsticky, but sort of funny. Lots of Jewish jokes and Jewish winks at the camera. If you keep your expectations low and just enjoy the manifold cameos by big stars, well, you will probably like this 40 years in the making sequel. If you watch History of the World Part 2 expecting the insanely brilliant comedy of Blazing Saddles or The Producers or Young Frankenstein or even High Anxiety, you'll be disappointed. 
So just enjoy the fact that the 96-year-old Brooks appears in the film, that Nick Kroll and Jack Black and a lot of Jewish writers, comedians, singers, and performers lent their talents to this shtick, and that it intentionally was released on Purim, and that will be good enough to enjoy. Israeli actor, producer, and social entrepreneur Chaim Topol, best known by international audiences for his portrayal of Tevye in the film and British and American stage productions of Fiddler on the Roof, died last week at the age of 87. If I were a rich man, all day long I bum. If I were a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work hard. If I were a bit of bit of rich, Topol was one of Israel's leading actors. He was known, usually by his last name alone, around the world for his stage and movie performances. For the part of Tevye and for his leading role in the film Salah Shabbati, he won a Tony Award and two Golden Globe Awards for Best Actor. He was also nominated for the Oscar for Best Actor at the Academy Awards in 1971 for Fiddler, but he lost out to Gene Hackman in The French Connection. Chaim Topol devoted much of his later years to charity as chairman of the board of Jordan River Village, a camp serving Middle Eastern children with life-threatening diseases. In 2015, he was awarded the Israel Prize for his life's work and for his incredible contributions to Israel and its society. Topol was born in 1935 and raised in Tel Aviv. He worked as a printer's apprentice in his youth, did his military service in the Nahal Entertainment Troupe, where he met his future wife, and also met Uri Zohar, his performance partner, for many years. While in the Nahal Troupe, Topol first played the character of Salah Shabbati, a Mizrahi Jew, that is a Jew from Morocco, who immigrated to Israel in a variety of sketches written by the brilliant Ephraim Kishon. Those are the basis for what some of us still think is one of the very best Israeli movies of all, directed by Kishon in 1964, Salah Shabbati. Topol's international career began in 1966 when he started to perform as Tevye the Dairyman in the West End musical Fiddler on the Roof. He played Tevye for decades in London and on Broadway. His first movie role was in 1961 in an Israeli film. His first English-language movie role came in 1966 in Cast a Giant Shadow, the story of Colonel Mickey Marcus, the American who helped the Israelis become independent. Marcus was played by another Jew, Kirk Douglas. When the U.S.-produced movie adaptation of Fiddler on the Roof was released in 1971 with Topol in the lead role, he garnered the Golden Globe Award for Best Actor in a Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy. The movie catapulted him to worldwide fame. Among other movies, he played the lead role in Galileo, in Flash Gordon, and in the James Bond movie For Your Eyes Only. Reflecting on his life, Topol said in 2015 that he worked to promote coexistence at the Jordan River Village. He said of that initiative, I can tell you that in our village, Jews and Arabs, Christians and Muslims and Jews are hugging each other, and it works very well when politicians are not involved. Lech Shalom, Topol. Go now in peace. And that's the two Jewish news of Jews round the world.
The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation, known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of Southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen. 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, Our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We welcome back to Two Jewish. Our guest this morning, Christopher Gorham, is an attorney and a history teacher who has written a fascinating biography of a woman who should be much better known, Anna Rosenberg. It's called The Confidant, The Untold Story of the Woman Who Helped Win World War II and Shape Modern America. Um, So uh, give us kind of a a brief biography. How did she start and how did she get involved um, particularly in her work for the FBI during World War II? I'll try to be brief. She <laughs> had a sort of a typical immigrant experience. Her family from Budapest was middle class, and her father had provided furnishings for the emperor, literally the emperor, um, you know, whose nephew was going to be Archduke Franz Ferdinand. There was a contract dispute. It got ugly, and Anna's father was essentially exiled from Budapest and wound up in New York and under much different circumstances. It took him a couple of years to save up the money to fetch his wife and daughters. And, you know, so Anna's sailing under the Statue of Liberty and she arrives, you know, as a 12 year old in the United States in New York and is just immediately patriotic. You know, she, you know, she's a precocious youngster. She gets involved with the suffrage movement. When World War One, when the U.S. enters World War One, she's volunteering after school as a nurse. She's selling Liberty Bonds on the on the on the street corner of New York. So she's just this engaged, born leader. And in her late teens and early twenties, the, the the suffrage, the interest in suffrage uh, expands to an interest in politics. And she starts to go hear Tammany speakers, and she. Here's a woman speaker, and it just fires her up. She hears a woman named Margaret Fay, and um, she also comes into the orbit of Bell Moskowitz, who's kind of the de facto chief of staff of Governor Al Smith. And from Bell Moskowitz, she learns that you can be the power behind the throne. And these were very formative uh, experiences for young Anna Rosenberg. 
So she gets involved in politics, um, and this is an incredibly dramatic, both terrible and remarkable period in history, um, and and gradually works her way. Um, it's fascinating because you talk about the fact that maybe one of the reasons she's not so well known is she she wasn't she didn't do a lot of writing really. A lot of her uh, work was verbal. She would be negotiating, working for national unity in, during World War II, stuff like that. Um, uh, how, did, how does she end up doing, you know, um, I mean, you begin with the story of her standing there in, in Hitler's retreat. Yeah, in the Eagle's Nest. Can you talk about that a little bit? By 1924, she's essentially 24 years old, 25 years old, and she meets Eleanor Roosevelt at a tea. And from Eleanor, she meets Franklin. She helps him win his gubernatorial she's on the team that helps him win his uh, gubernatorial campaign and you know from then to the rest of his life she's in the roosevelt orbit and as i as you mentioned in 1945 she was sent to wartime europe this was her second mission for fdr franklin roosevelt by this time had died but anna rosenberg on her second mission to europe during the war um dealt with uh, displaced persons, uh, French Jews that had been displaced by war, and then she actually did fly to uh, with some, to meet the troops who had liberated um, Hitler's Eagle's Nest. It must have been an unbelievable experience. Um, I mean, the the transit of a lot of um, people who were active during World War II is extraordinary. Here she is. You know, at this moment, um, seeing the victory that she worked so hard to create, um, when when she comes back, uh, she's now working really with with Harry Truman with the Truman administration. T- tell us a little bit about her service there. When she returned from her second wartime mission, she worked uh, closely with veterans. She was very very close to the soldiers and wanted them to have not only the fruits of what was the GI Bill, but also counseling. She had seen war. She had seen death. She had seen what the soldiers had seen on those two missions, and she realized they were not the same people. So her her work with Truman, a lot of it had to deal with uh, the the beginnings of the, the, the veterans programs for those, what, 12 or 13 million Americans that returned from the, the Pacific and from Europe. She continues to be highly active in politics, um, and, and as you note, uh, is you know, uh, I don't know, confidant exactly, but in in the in Truman's orbit, certainly um, very active in the administration. Uh, I, I want to move to where she's nominated for this position. To tell us a little bit about um, how kind of her career flows. So poor Harry Truman. Um, he has, you know, China becomes communist on his watch. The Soviets shock the world by detonating an atomic bomb on his watch. And then the, the Korean War breaks out. And he, it, it go, it's going disastrously. He fires the Secretary of Defense. He, he summons George Marshall, you know, the architect of World War II victory yeah. out of retirement. And the Marshall and, Plan. And, you know, brings and back, bring him back, plan. right. Yes. And, the, you know, he's just a giant. And he, you know, asked Anna Rosenberg, who's now sort of retired, and she, she's retired from government service, but she's working to rebuild her business. 
he asked Anna Rosenberg to come to the Pentagon to help him rebuild the United States Army, which is occupying Japan, occupying West Germany, trying to contain the communist threat in Europe, and now there's a war in Korea. And it was just an extraordinary moment. Civilian woman, former New Dealer, you know, speaks with a, a, a faint Hungarian accent, and here she is going to be rebuilding the U.S. Army uh, in the early desperate days of the Cold War. She um, talks about, uh, you mentioned in the book, or she talks about, uh, you know, a woman running the army. And she said, you know, if you can't take it, meaning all the not latent sexism, in those days it was overt sexism uh, in the Pentagon, in Washington in general, in politics then, if you can't take it, you don't belong here in Washington. Um, Absolutely. She said that to Edward R. Murrow. You know, it's amazing. Her story is fantastic. Why did it kind of fade so much from public consciousness to the extent that, you know, we don't really even talk about her? I think there were a couple of reasons, and you mentioned one of them already, Rabbi. You mentioned the the unfortunate coincidence of her last name. That was part of it. Another part was Anna Rosenberg did not have a university education. You know, you think about someone like Frances Perkins, who has, you know, Penn and Columbia, and those institutions, you know, kept the flame of Frances Perkins alive. For Anna Rosenberg, there's no such institution. And thirdly, and, and maybe mo most importantly, is she w really found the me and FDR memoirs distasteful. She thought that she'd been brought into the Oval Office and brought into Roosevelt's study to have conversations that were meant only for the two of them. And this was not, you know, she, the idea of this being in a book for sale just uh, was not something she was interested in. And, you know, she did not want to trumpet herself into history. She, you know, she'd worked with these giants, but she felt like she was just little Anna Rosenberg. I mean, little Anna Rosenberg was one of the people who really got things done. Um, in an important and very good way for a long time. Um, when you discovered it, you know, were there still people you could talk to that had known her? There were. They're getting on in years, but um, the spokesperson, when she died in 1983, uh, I was able to talk to him, Owen Blicksilver, and he had some marvelous recollections, uh, some of which are in the book. Um, her grandson... Tom Rosenberg, still very much around, and again, had some very moving uh, remembrances of her as his grandmother. You know, she lived in a, she had a house in Katona at the time, and both Owen and, and Tom Rosenberg, what was interesting is they didn't know all the backstory. They'd seen the photos of Truman and Roosevelt and so forth, but they didn't have really an inkling of how instrumental uh, Anna had been in the GI Bill, in keeping the secrecy of the Thomas bomb, and, and many other things. And it was just kind of flabbergasting to me. And um, I am very excited for those two gentlemen to read the book, um, and I can't wait to hear their feedback. I, I want to thank Christopher Gorham for a, a great visit here on Two Jewish. Uh, it's, a, it's a terrific read. The book is called The Confidant. Uh, where can people go to find out more about the book and uh, more about you? 
Well, people can head over to ChristopherCGorham.com, and uh, that's my website. G-O-R-H-A-M. And uh, I wish you luck with the book, and it's a great story that deserves to be told. And I don't know, maybe a Netflix streaming series. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Christopher. Thank you for having me on, and thanks to your listeners. When we come back on Two Jewish, we'll hear about next week's guest. Get a final musical playout. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki Tribe. Thanks for being here with us this morning on Two Jewish with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan. Join us next week. Our guest will be Nina Siegel, author of The Diary Keepers, World War II in the Netherlands, as written by the people who lived through it. It's a great book. Join us at Congregation Beit Simcha each and every Friday night for services and Oneg Shabbat at 6.30 p.m. Saturday morning, too, 9 a.m. Torah study, 10 a.m. services, Torah reading in Kiddush, live in person and available on our Facebook page. And sign up now for our first night Passover Seder. Let my people rejoice. Open to everyone with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan. It's at BeitSimchaTucson.org. That Seder is coming up Wednesday night, April 5th at 6 p.m. Our play out this morning is from Israeli singer Yehoram Gaon for Passover in less than a month. It's the wonderful Ladino version of Who Knows One from the end of the Pesach Seder. Ladino, of course, is the language of the Sephardic Jews of Spain and the diaspora, a combination of medieval Spanish and Hebrew. My friends, have a Shavua Tov, a good week, a healthy week, and a week we pray profoundly of peace. Ken supiense y entendiense alabar al Dio criense Cualo es el uno, cualo es el uno Uno es el criador, uno es el criador Uno es el criador, barujehu, barujemo Ken supiense y entendiense alabar al Dio criense Cualo son los dos, cualo son los dos Dos Moshe y Aaron, uno es el Criador, uno es el Criador, Baruch Baruch Shemo. Quien supiense y entendiense, alabar al Dios criense, cuáles son los... Sponsored by Two Jewish Radio Programs, Tucson, Arizona.